you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book, the New Testament and the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Some of you might remember that in previous years, many churches and Christians divided pretty sharply at some times over issues related to the end times. How exactly was Christ going to come back? When was he going to come back? Is there a secret rapture of the church? What about a millennial kingdom? Again, arguments were sometimes heated, debates uh, sometimes used strong language over such things, and division was sometimes called among God's people. But most of that, frankly, is behind us now. The end times obsession that resulted in the book series, the Left Behind, uh, the Left Behind book series, those things are largely over in the sense that there is not the same amount of attention being given to matters related to the end times. The problem with all of that, though, is that in many ways we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. That is to say, we've moved from being obsessed about uh, end times things, especially in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, now to hardly thinking at all about such things. Neither are particularly helpful. In fact, we do not think about Christ's return very much as often as we normally, or rather as previous generations would, as we normally should, nor do we think much about what eternity will be like for those of us who are God's people and for those who are not. We don't think about what heaven and hell will be like. But if you stop and think just for a minute, if you think about what it would be like if you took 10 or 15 or maybe even 30 minutes to think about perhaps today is the day Jesus will return, how would that affect your day? How would that affect your life that day? Would it change how you live? I think if we got out of bed and the first thought was, I might see my Savior today, I think it would have a profound effect on how we live our lives. And if you don't believe me, then trust the Apostle Paul. Because he says in Colossians 3, If then you who have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Paul says, if you are a Christian, your life is hid with Christ, and your life is rooted in Christ, who is in heaven. Your life is rooted in eternity and the things that are to come. Therefore, he says, in this life, set your minds on those things. Dwell on the things of eternity. This morning as we come to the conclusion of this series that we've been looking at the last several weeks on the core doctrines of the Christian faith, we come to the end, as it were. The end of the world and what happens in the world to come. It is what the theologians call eschatology, but we can just call it the doctrine of last things. And it's by thinking about these things that I hope we will be able to reorient our lives to the things of God. And this morning, toward that end, I want us to look at Revelation chapter 20, the first eight verses. Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, 21, the first eight verses. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. As he, and he who was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. From the outset, we need to see the absolute God-centeredness of all of this. Throughout this book, uh, it's been angels that have been speaking to John, telling him, look here, look at this, this is what this means. And now suddenly God himself breaks in and addresses the apostle. John says, to him who was seated on the throne, and if you've read the rest of the book, you will know God the Father is the one who is seated on this throne throughout this book. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago when we talked about the doctrine of sin and why it is we need God to be a Savior who brings redemption, you will know that as we read even these words, but especially all of chapters 21 and 22, there is this beautiful picture of the glory of heaven and eternity and the world that is to come. And you're going to have to ask yourself, how do we get from sin and corruption and depravity to this glorious thing that was promised in the future? How do we get there? How do we get from this to that? And the answer is God. God. God is the one who will do it. He is the one that can move us from total corruption to complete joy and glory and righteousness. He is the one who acts. He is the one who stands at the center of all things. He is the beginning and the end. He is the only one who can guarantee that things work out the way they are promised here. It is God who will make all things new. And as we think about the end what we see is that the end is really the beginning, the beginning of forever. It's the beginning of a new created order that will last for eternity. And this morning, in order to encourage your hearts and in order to help refocus your living now, what I want to do is to show you four ways in which God will make all things new. Four promises about what He will do one day for His people and all creation. This is what we want to look at this morning. So number one, we see God promises a new creation. God promises a new creation. After seeing many other things throughout this book, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now this is very much a fulfillment of the vision of God's workings throughout the Bible, even into the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah, God says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Even as far back as Isaiah, God is promising uh, not just a restoration of physical Israel, but an entirely new created order. And we could go even farther back in some ways, back to the very beginning of the Bible to see where it is, uh, uh, where it is that we begin moving towards this new creation. 
In Genesis, God brings into existence this amazing creation. Planets, stars, animals, fish, people. He does it perfectly. There's no sin or pain or death. It's perfect. And then we make a royal hash out of it. We bring sin into the world. We bring pain and corruption and death into the world. And it never gets better. Even in times of revival when God's people become incredibly holy and on fire for God and living the way they should, both in biblical times and throughout church history, no matter how educated we get, no matter how well-off countries become, we are still fundamentally corrupted. We are still fundamentally sinful. All of creation is contaminated. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8 that the creation itself is longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Intimately connected to God's plan of redeeming His people is the plan to redeem all of creation as well. Now you think about this promise that God is giving, a new heaven and a new earth. And of course our first question, at least my first question is, what is it going to be like? What is it going to be like to to live for all of eternity? What is it going to to, to be like to never have an ending in this new heaven, this new earth? Uh, What is that? What will that be like? What's it going to look like the the second Thursday after it all begins? I mean, practically speaking, well, the answer is we don't know, frankly. I mean, we are given some, some glimpses of what life will be like, but very few details, and even the ones that we are told, are a bit difficult to get our mind around. Why? Well, it's because we are so much a part of this old creation, aren't we? We are so much a part of this world in terms of our living and our thinking, um, that it's very hard to get our minds around anything different. Imagine if, if you lived your entire life in the United States, and let's imagine in some way uh, at your 50th birthday, maybe even your 40th birthday, that you had never heard of any other cultures outside of your own. You'd never heard of any other countries. You'd never heard of any of that stuff. And suddenly someone sits you down and tries to explain Japan to you. They try to explain samurai warriors and their history tries to explain what a kimono looks like, tries to explain eating food with chopsticks, tries to explain the fact that they don't use letters like we do, but little pictograms that form their alphabet. I mean, you're not going to be like, oh, that's kind of cool. You'll be like, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, you're going to have no categories for it. It's not like they can even pop in a DVD player and show it to you either. Or it's not like they can, they can have this Japanese man or woman come and say, now look, you know, look at the Japanese person. They'll explain to you their culture. You don't have any of that. All you've got are their descriptions. You're going to be like, I don't get it. doesn't make any sense. Likewise, we, we don't have anybody from the new heaven and the new earth here to say, oh, this is what it'll be like. We don't have a DVD that God has given to us to say, look, this is what it's going to be like. We don't have any of that. All we have are these descriptions, and that's why it's very hard for us very often to get our mind around what is all this going to be look like. But John is completely clear in one thing, in some ways the most important thing. He says, when I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, does this mean no vacations at the beach? Does it mean that that's it? No. Look, the thing you have to know about Revelation is that virtually the entire thing is bound up in symbol-laden imagery. This stands for that. And very often you'll see the angels. uh, You'll see John has this amazing vision. The angels say, look, this is what this means. And so what we need to understand is that for us today, 
Uh, the sea is a great place to have a vacation. We get on boats and we go out. But for the ancient peoples, the sea was not a place of comfort. It was not a place of relaxation. It represented chaos and confusion and evil. And you can see that even referenced in the book of Isaiah again. But even here in this book, in chapter 13, it is the great satanic beast that is pictured rising up out of the sea. What does that mean? Does that mean that some sperm whale is going to attack? No, 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 no. Again, it's symbol-laden imagery. The very essence of what stands for sin and corruption and chaos, it's that which produces this thing that is against God and His people in every way. And so for John to say there's no more sea, it's not saying there's no more beaches, there's no more oceans in the new heaven and the new earth. It's Him saying there is no more sin. No more sin. Nothing. No corruption. There's never a, a repeat of the Garden of Eden. There's no apple, there's no, there's no devil, there's no demons. There is no moral corruption or decay at all. This is the kind of new creation that God is promising for His people. The kind that He is going to bring about. No chaos, no danger, no violence, no more sin. But secondly, secondly, He also promises a new relationship. A new relationship. Awesome, or if they would, if you can close that door back there, that would be helpful. God promises a new relationship. We see this in verses 2 through 3. John says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now again, uh, something that we have to know about Revelation, and, and frankly, if I ever get around to preaching to the book, we'll spend a lot of time talking about this, but it, the literature is not like reading Paul's epistles. It's not like reading through the Psalms, okay? And one of the things that Revelation loves to do is mix its metaphors, okay? If I were to do that in, in English class, uh, it doesn't matter how good those two metaphors were, if they didn't go together, uh, I would get marked off on that, okay? But in this kind of literature, you can do it, it's okay, so, for instance, in chapters 4 and 5, John is given this amazing vision of the throne room of heaven. And one of the angels says, look, turn and behold the line of the tribe of Judah. And John says he turns and what does he see? He says, I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Now, we're not supposed to think, well, where'd the lion go? Or, you know, no, 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 no. It's mixed metaphor. It's the same person. It's Christ. He is both the warrior Messiah who has conquered death hell and sin, but he is also the lamb who conquered through his humble obedience to the cross and was raised back to life again. He's uh, mixing metaphors. And so likewise here, when we talk about the new creation of the new city, we're not, we're not meant to think it's two different things here. It's the same thing viewed from different ways. The in fact, later on, uh, the, uh, here it talks about the city prepared for the bride. Uh, just in a few verses later, John will also, uh, they will be juxtaposed to that the city is the bride. So there's all kinds of this mixed language here. But very specifically, you see this imagery of this new creation. And this new creation is very much also like a new city that has been established for God's people. Specifically, Specifically, through the imagery of the bride and the groom. God's people, it says, are adorned like a bride, ready to meet her husband on her wedding day. You know, when you read the Old Testament, as we saw several weeks ago, 
but you also see it in the new. You see unfaithfulness to God is pictured as spiritual adultery over and over and over again. Israel is called a harlot because she did not stay faithful to God and she went after idols. But here John says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with a man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What is he saying? No more infidelity. No more infidelity. No more running around after other gods. No more mistrust of God like Adam and Eve in the Bible and in Genesis. Instead, we have a people so arrayed in the glorious beauty of purity and righteousness that she is pictured as a bride adorned on her wedding day, ready to fully commit herself for all eternity to her husband. Now, in these things, in this imagery of the city and the bride, I want us to specifically notice two things. First of all, this imagery of the husband and the wife. Why does God use this imagery for his relationship to his people? Well, I think for a very clear reason, that's this. In terms of human relationships, in terms of human relationships, the consummation of a loving marriage where people truly and deeply care about one another and are committed to one another, it is the, the closest most delightful intimacy that anybody can know. There's just no other friendship, no other relationship among humanity that exists like that. And therefore, I think, especially when you read Ephesians 5, you will see Paul arguing God intentionally created marriage to help us understand about what our relationship with God should be like and is going to be like one day. Anything good that you can say about marriage, we all know that because of sin, marriage is not always perfect. Marriage is not always a happy thing. Some couples even uh, tear apart their marriage. But if there is anything good that can be said about marriage in this life, if there is any depth of joy and happiness and love in the relationship of marriage, understand it is all pointing forward to, magnified in perfection, to the relationship and the pleasure that will be had between God and His people on the final day. Secondly, I want us to think about this idea of the city that God is creating. This idea runs not only in the book of Revelation, but even in the book of Hebrews that we read from earlier, this idea of God's people looking for a city. And I think part of what we need to understand is that, is that the hope of our redemption is profoundly social. It's profoundly communal. We often think about our life now and our life in the future in very individual terms, don't we? We talk about salvation in terms of me being saved and me exercising personal faith. All those things are true, but you need to understand, as was talked about in previous weeks, we are not saved just by ourselves. We are saved into the people of God, the church. We are called to exist together. And therefore, both now and in the future, that will be a defining characteristic of God's people, that we are all bound together in this heavenly city. D.A. Carson points out that today, very often people hate the cities. They would much rather have the open space and the country. And part of that is because the more people you have, the more sin you tend to have. You think about the biggest cities in our country, and very often those are the ones with the highest crime rates. Those are the ones that you can find the most debauchery. They are often seen as cesspools to be avoided. But notice what God's solution is. God's solution is not to spread people out 
to de-socialize people, to cause them to move farther away so that sin will be spread out. No, no, that's not God's plan. God's plan is to make a new city with a new people who so love God and one another, the city is a place to rejoice in being at. It becomes the place you long to be. Can you imagine even our own cities, even our own small towns like Bay City, how different it would be if everyone was actually committed to one another's good? That instead of selfish interest, instead of sinful moments, uh, uh, motives, we were actually committed to loving and caring for one another? First of all, there'd be no more loneliness in cities. You know, there's that great... There's that great song by the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby. It's all about this woman who lives her entire life in the midst of a busy city. And no one notices. No one notices she's there. No one notices when she dies. So that way, when she does die and the funeral comes, there's the pastor preaching to no one. Because no one knew and no one cared. That's life. That's life today, isn't it? But can you imagine... Can you imagine if we actually loved and cared for one another the way God calls us to? There would be no loneliness. There would be no need for locks on the door. There would be no need for reasons of security and safety. And that's the kind of future that God has in store for us. It is a city, it is a people so bound up with love for God and love for one another. And in fact, if that is what God is aiming for in our own life, how much more should we be striving for it in this life? a life of profound faithfulness and love to God that is in part evidenced by our deep love and commitment for one another as God's people. Well, we see God preparing for us a new creation, establishing a new relationship. We also see that he promises us a new existence, a new existence. Just as God is going to make creation new, he is always going, also going to make his people new. Not just spiritually either, but also physically. John says, God, is verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Bible says that Christ died for sinners, but he didn't stay dead. The Bible is clear that on the third day, Christ came back to life. And he didn't just appear to be alive. You know, that is what some of the uh, liberal scholars will say, and that is, you know, Christ's spirit raised back from the dead and appeared to his people. But those that were there didn't see it that way. So, for instance, in Luke's gospel, you will see people met Jesus on their way to the city of Emmaus, and they are gathered together with the disciples talking about these things. And in chapter 24, Luke says this, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus really came back to life. He really came back to the dead, not just spiritually, but also physically. And this becomes the pattern then for what we ourselves should expect one day in the future. So much so that in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, the same Christ whose return we await to bring fulfillment to all of God's plans for redeeming his people. He says, we await that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What we see throughout the Bible is this teaching that Christ is the first 
fruits of the resurrection. That just as He was raised up incorruptible, glorious, and all of His of all of his perfected humanity. So that sets the pattern. That is the template for our own future, that one day we also will have our bodies raised up, immortal, transformed, fit to live forever in God's presence. You see, the Christian hope is not about floating around like ghosts in robes with halos and wings. That's Hollywood's depiction of heaven. But that's not what we have a hope for. In fact, heaven is not even our hope. If I were to heaven forbid, die right now and be in the immediate presence of God, that would be amazing. But that's not where my hope lies. That's not what I was created for. That's a temporary place for me to be until God does the work that he's talked about here, the new heaven and the new earth, whereby my body will raise up incorruptible, united again with my spirit, that I may live out my days physically before my God and King. The Christian hope is about God doing a miracle. It's about Him taking a rotting corpse in a coffin or the smallest dust of long-faded remains and recreating them into a radiant, everlasting body fit for the glory of His presence. The Christian hope is physical, face-to-face fellowship with God for all of eternity. That's the Christian hope of the resurrection. And that's what John has in view here in Revelation 21. We will be able to be a part of the new creation because we ourselves will be a new creation. It's a glorious future. For God, he says, will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. Any funeral you go to, I guarantee you, someone is crying. And though we try and comfort ourselves by saying things like, well, death is just a natural part of life. No, it isn't. Death is the enemy. It's not what we were created for. That's why we mourn. That's why we cry. That's why we weep. Our lives have been ripped apart from those that we love. But John says the day is coming and that will never happen again. For there will be no more death. God is going to raise up His people just like Christ that they may dwell together with Him forever. All of this, the new creation, the new relationship, the new existence is all part of the promise of a new salvation that God gives to us here in these verses. This is the last thing that we see. God promises a new salvation. And here I do not mean that God is doing something new in the sense that it is disconnected from salvation in the past. What I mean is that there is a newness to our experience of salvation. Already God's people have salvation. Paul says that when we believe, we have passed from death to life. And yet it is clear we're not experiencing the things that he talks about here, are we? I don't know about you, but if this is my resurrection body, I'm disappointed. Okay? Uh, Because hair is falling out, wrinkles come, you get weird spots when you're out in the sun too long. I I don't care for that kind of existence for all of eternity, okay? It's run down and run down and run down. And God says, no, 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 no. You are saved. I have my spirit within you. I have sealed you with my spirit until the day of Christ's return. But this is not all I've got for you. This is only the beginning. All of the benefits that we've been reading about and thinking about this morning are not reality now, but one day they will. And it will be the final culmination of our redemption in Christ. He says, To the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's an amazing picture of the salvation 
that we have by faith in Christ. The imagery suggests fullness of life for all eternity, for all who thirst after God. God Himself and all His glory and the beauty of the new creation will be the inheritance of His people. The people themselves will be so transformed as to resemble God as well. That's the language of sonship. It's not just about the adoption of sinners, that's part of it, but it's also about the transformation of sinners into God's likeness so that they resemble their Heavenly Father. We have talked about before how in the first century, the Son did whatever the Father did. If the Father made metal pots, the Son grew up to make metal pots. If the Father was a politician, the Son grew up to be a politician. That's not that way, but... Now, very much, but that's the way it was in the first century, and that's what God intends us to understand in this language of adoption. If we are His sons, then He wants us to look like Him. And He wants that now, but He will make it perfectly true one day in the future, when we are recreated without sin at all. We will be His children, and He will be our God perfectly and finally forever. But notice, not everyone will experience this salvation. God says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Part of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth is that there will be no sin, ever. But that also means that before these things come about, there will be a judgment, whereby God's people will be separated from everybody else. Christ will return the same way he ascended to heaven after his resurrection and there will be a winnowing of the wheat and the chaff, a division of sheep and goats, a declaration of the just from the unjust. And while those who have trusted God will find their life in Christ and experience the fullness of their salvation, those that have persisted in their rebellion, who have turned away from God and not trusted him or obeyed him, they will find their eternal existence in the consignment of a conscious torment of an eternal hell. Back in the 1660s in England, there was a pastor named Richard Baxter. He struggled all of his life with physical infirmities. When he was 21, he said, there is not a day goes by that I am not in pain because of some problem with my body. In fact, one time, He was in such pain and so ill that he laid in bed believing he would never get out of that bed alive again. And so he began to do what I guess every preacher longs to do, and that was write his own funeral sermon. And so he began to meditate on death and on the new heaven and the new earth, on salvation, on on the fate of those that were not in Christ. And God in His grace allowed Baxter to live and Baxter took those notes and began to to grow them into a series of sermons that were eventually published as a large book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. It's considered by many to be a classic. It's still in print today. But the editions that you find are very much, uh, very often edited down from the massive work that Baxter first published And in preparing for this message, I had my copy down looking through it, and I was reading the preface where the editor talks about what he took out and what he left in. And I was a little astonished when I read one of the sections that he left out. He said Baxter in his original work had a large section where he meditated greatly on passages that talked about the horrors of hell and the fate of those that would be consigned to it forever. And the the editor basically said, you know, 
We took that out because we believe Baxter was just a product of his time. Back then, everybody believed that. But if he was really open-minded and lived in our time and saw the amazing amount of passages that talked about how God is loving and gracious towards sinners, he never would have put that in the book. And you realize what the editor is doing, right? He's saying Baxter could not understand the Bible and was blind from seeing God would never really send anybody to hell because of his culture. Well, unfortunately... The Bible bears out over and over and over again. The editor is wrong and Baxter is right. Hell is not a pleasant thought. It's not a joke. And it's not something you would necessarily choose to be true. Nevertheless, the Bible says hell is a real place and we cannot ignore it. And yet how often are we like that editor? How often do we perhaps not go to those places that talk about hell in our devotions? How often do we intentionally redirect our thoughts away from the fate of those who have never heard or have outright rejected Christ? How many times have we simply said, I'm glad I'm not going there and have moved on with our life and our thinking and our concerns? Brothers and sisters, you need to understand all of these doctrines that we have been looking at are not just ideas on a shelf somewhere. These are truths that have radical implications for how we live our lives. If we really believe the amazing things we've been reading up to this point about our salvation that is promised to us in its fullness because we have placed faith in Christ, then that has implications for those that have not placed faith in Christ. And it has implications for how we live in light of these realities and these truths. We can talk about missions. We can talk about a great commission resurgence. We can talk about reaching people with the gospel and loving Bay City. But the reality is that there are not some nights we lay awake in tears, fearing for the eternal destruction of our family and friends who have not placed faith in Christ. If we are not intentionally, actively seeking to engage people with the gospel, open our mouths and tell them of the only name by which men and women may be saved, then we don't believe these truths. It's not that we are failing to live up to our theology, it's that we don't believe it. Because we will always live up to our theology. You will always live up to your beliefs. Just as if I can say with all my heart, I love my wife, but if I treat her like a dog, you would never say I love my wife. I don't treat her like a dog, just so you know. But likewise, if we say, in Christ alone, and we don't tell the person down the street, we don't believe in Christ alone. At all. More than that, we betray the Christ we say we do believe. Because he has not given us a suggestion. He has not given us advice. He has given us a command. You go and you tell and you make disciples. And if we don't do that, if we have no part in that, if we have no interest in that, we are sinning. We are saying, Christ, I refuse to listen to you. I refuse to love you enough to do what you say. None of those things are good options for those that claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, you may be here this morning and let me just say something to you. Perhaps you've never trusted in Christ for salvation and you hear of this eternal destruction that awaits those who don't have faith, this eternal destruction in hell. Let me just say to you, in chapter 22, verse 17, John says this, the Spirit and the Bride, that is the Spirit of God and the church, 
say come. And let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Here's the thing. Christ has never turned anyone away. Never. And so while we, the bride of Christ, are out to be saying, come, come, God himself in his word says, you listen to them and you come because I will not turn you away. If you are thirsty and come to me for drink, then I will allow you to drink deep of the well of my salvation. This morning, trust in Christ to find forgiveness of your sins so that this new heaven and this new earth, this new salvation, this redemption, this loving relationship with God, that can be yours because Christ stood in your place and died on a cross to bear the judgment you deserve and unless you turn, will one day face forever in hell. I've often heard people say that it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, the New Testament says otherwise. In fact, it says the very opposite is true. The more one thinks about the future, the more one thinks about the world that is to come, the more useful they will be in this world. One pastor says, think about it like this. If you are on an airplane and someone jumps out and they have no parachute and you watch them falling to their death and you have no parachute on, then you are not going to jump out after them, are you? One death is bad enough, but two becomes senseless in that regard. But if you see a man jump out of an airplane or fall out of an airplane with no parachute and you are wearing a parachute and you know because you've packed it yourself or perhaps someone that you know and love has packed it for you, you know it's going to work, then you just may attempt one of those amazing rescues where you dive like a bullet out of that plane, grab onto that person and pull the chute for both of you. Now why in the world are you able to do that? It's because of the hope of safety that has released you from fear into radical, sacrificial love. And brothers and sisters, if you have an assurance of salvation that is rooted not only in the work of Christ on the cross, but a vision of what He promises in the future, if that is where your hope lies, then in this world, you will be released into radical, risk-taking love in reaching the nations and in building up God's people, the church. It's the hope of a new creation that allows you to say, I'm not worried about investing my time here, but rather in laying up treasures in heaven that that's where my heart might be. You say, how do you lay up treasures in heaven? Simply this, invest in eternity. The Bible says only two things will last in all of eternity from this world. Do you know what they are? God's word and human people. That's it. That's all that's going to last forever. So you have a choice. You can invest in eternity by looking to those around you who claim the name of Christ and loving them till it hurts. Loving them in such a way that you demonstrate your love for God by loving his people and loving those that are not yet his people by telling them of the gospel. Because you have a hope that is secure in the new heavens and the new earth. Or, or you can betray the faith that you say that you have. You can betray the Savior that you say that you love and sit on the couch and play Xbox and watch DVDs and chat on Facebook and do absolutely nothing for your king. But I have a fear that the person who chooses the, sex op the second option may not really have the kind of relationship with God they think they have. And so this morning, like Paul, who encouraged the Colossians, I hope that it could be said of us, we have heard of the love you have for all the saints because 
of the hope you have laid up in heaven. Remember the future you have in Christ and live today in light of it. With thankfulness and love for God, in deep meaningful fellowship and love for God's people, and in radical obedience and commitment to God's mission. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truths that are there. Father, they are truths of great encouragement. Father, what, what could be more encouraging than seeing the, the vision of a new heaven and a new earth that you have prepared for your people? The language of a husband loving his bride. And yet, Father, there are truths that convict and cut deep when we have failed to obey. Father, I pray that in every way this morning that you will be at work drawing people to yourself perhaps in faith for the first time or perhaps just in greater commitment to live as your people who claim to have faith in you. Father, in whatever way, in your sovereign will, you desire us to be changed, then do it this morning. Humble us, make us willing to to be encouraged and to have our lives transformed that we might live lives that honor you and show that ultimately our lives are secure in eternity. We pray this for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.